0: Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam François, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture, what does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by forensic psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, Dr. Aruna Killanani, whose speech entitled, The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind, delivered at Yale School of Medicine in America, gained global attention after a quote from it was made public earlier this year. In it, Dr. Kilinani stated, I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step. Yale subsequently restricted access to the talk and issued a statement distancing itself from Dr. Kilinani's comments. Today, she joins me to discuss the context behind that statement, the uh, whiteness within psychiatry, and her experience of challenging whiteness in her field. Dr. Aruna Kilanani. thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So first off, how has life been since the comments were made public of that now infamous talk at Yale? Mm -hmm. I've seen a little bit of the coverage, I can only imagine the ride.
1: Well, I think it's sort of a part of a larger symptom of how the country is kind of responding and responding to critical race theory, responding to basically anything that threatens whiteness. So I sort of see it as a symptom.
0: And and do you feel that your words were taken out of context? Because I know a lot of people who speak on sensitive subjects will always say you can never kind of just take one part of a speech you know, without understanding kind of the wider context of where it was delivered, who it was delivered to, what you said prior, what you said after. Do do you feel you were
1: misrepresented? Well, I think it was an intentional distortion. I think it's an intentional distortion on the part of the press. Um, I think that's part of white violence is the press sort of participating in it. Mm. By participating in, nobody sort of vetted the story no one listened to the video, but it's part of the larger white unconscious to sort of make this moment go viral, spread it everywhere, and then not actually account for any kind of responsibility, I think is sort of in cleaning anything up, you know? So
0: what were you hoping that people listening at Yale that day might gain from hearing
1: those thoughts? Well, I think what I was actually trying to do and what was actually achieved is um, a couple of things. Firstly, I was actually inviting white people into a sacred room, and I marked this very carefully, mm-hmm. that because um, of difficulty with white people owning their own violence and us having conversations about race, black and brown people have always had another room, where we actually talk about white people. And the purpose of my doing that was to actually create psychological safety for BIPOCs and an invitation for white people to kind of actually enter that safe space to see how we view you. Hmm. And it was meant to actually be that. But of course, what ends up happening is that on some level, white people express expect that 24 seven Every moment of every day needs to be safe space for white people. Mm. And we have this enormous explosion, but not actually during the time of the talk. Mm. And then and then what, what I described was a defensive system in detail that gets activated when anyone begins talking about race, which is that you focus on the other person. You focus on my anger. You make me the problem. You need to categorize me. To say that I'm violent, psychotic, and a series of reversals about how I'm the real racist and full of hate. And the unconscious purpose is to actually distract and to uh, destroy the meaning of the word racism. So all of this is part of a strategy of the unconscious to not know its own, its true intentions. Mm. And I think this is sort of, you know, the fact that I think you and other people are even asking me sort of the same question, I think is part unconsciously of white people need to reiterate their goodness. I think even starting our interview this way, I think it's sort of part of that unconscious process where I think, you know, people sort of apologize for it. But I think the real issue uh, is to sort of position me as a player in this game of white people needing to defend their goodness and it's a way that white people take power you tell me why you made these statements you know and it's a kind of a goal i think not on purpose but to distract us from the real conversation about race and i think one of the reasons i mean i put out many statements i put out statements on my instagram on tiktok i've done interviews with black news tonight with african diaspora I think one of the reasons that I have to keep explaining it on an on another level is because unconsciously, I haven't apologized. White people are very upset. Some white people are very upset that I have not apologized for it. And they experience my non-apology is incredibly threatening to them.
0: Uh, yes, I, I, I hear you. And of course, I, uh, I can't discount how uh, other people perceive it. I would just say that obviously um, each, individual show has to contextualize the conversation and i suppose this was a major talking point right publicly um Mm -hmm. around kind of how whiteness is discussed how people respond to it but so Mm -hmm. what was the conversation that you were hoping would emerge so this is obviously like you say a defensive response what was the conversation that you were hoping would emerge
1: well it actually did it it, it did emerge um, for the people that were there. I think that it only got very negative uh, when it gained negative attention, but basically was to go through an unconscious process that a lot of the talk around race is sort of using these words unconscious bias, but then you go to these DEI committees, diversity, equity, inclusion, And all you learn is sort of new vocabulary words. This is intergenerational trans uh, racism. This is institutional racism. And I think that that feels very good to white people because you learn a lot of words. It's very soothing. You never have to actually experience a negative emotion. And I think a lot of that is made very palatable by making things very abstract and very far removed. So the purpose of what I was trying to do Um, is almost sort of like having a psychoanalytic moment, except for the blind spots in psychoanalysis, which is to go through an an emotional journey, to let yourself feel, to get unsettled, to feel negative emotions. And I actually gave instructions, very specific instructions for people at the beginning of the talk, which is to begin to observe the difference between a thought a feeling and an action, that racism is actually an action. And it happens because people are unaware, and they do not own their negative intentions of violence. So only when you bypass that negative emotion, and you're used to bypassing that negative emotion, will it come out as an action. And the other thing that I ask people to observe, um, that's very important, that sort of you know, taking place in this viral moment with me right now, is are they having any moral reactions to what I'm saying? And morality is an intense part of whiteness, because it's the need to shut something down, to say that this is wrong, you can't say this, it's that need for control. And the idea around the morality is that you are the good one, someone else is bad and they're bad because they're having negative feelings, they're having negative thoughts, we need to shut it down, we are so good. But actually I'm saying what it is is the opposite, that people who can have negative thoughts and are in contact where, with their aggression are actually psychologically healthier and they're not gonna actually act on anything.
0: So I remember, yeah, um, I think you posted something on on Instagram about the idea that um, conservatives are actually psychologically healthier. Uh, yeah white liberals and i and i'm sure that uh, many white liberals i mean that there, there've been a few contributors on the podcast who raised um that particular issue um I, I i'm really curious about your field and how, how so, i mean something a lot of the things you've just said so you take people on a journey where they confront what, you know people are, are asked to confront what our deepest darkest thoughts is that what the journey is when you uh, you know, sit with a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Is that the idea is that you kind of delve into? Are you,
1: are you talking about, um, my individual work with a patient?
0: Yeah. So I was just thinking, yeah. um, you know, is the idea of the talk behind the talk similar to what you do with individual patients, I guess.
1: Absolutely. So I think that, you know, people who come in to see me and I do psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy, um, they have a narrative of themselves. Yeah. You know, everybody has a narrative of themselves. You know, if I say, who are you, you can say I'm this person and you'll give me a narrative of who you are that structures how you experience yourself. And what I'm sort of saying is what is left out of that narrative or what you don't touch um, might actually be sources of pain, sources of conflict. Okay. But But that that narrative, you know, and everybody has one may not may like actually not be useful to you anymore. It may have been useful to people at a certain moment in time, like when they were younger, and they needed that narrative for survival with their parents with their siblings to get through something that was very hard. And that's the story that they've come up with. Mm -hmm. But because of that, they have kind of managed to live a life where they keep circling around those areas of pain and those areas of pain are kind of like a tumor, you know, but at that it still exists there and it's going to impact all parts of your life. But unless you kind of slowly open it and look at it, it's going to continue to harm you in ways that are outside of your awareness. So only by kind of going into that, can people actually feel safe enough to look in those areas of pain to look at those areas of aggression, anger towards your parents, anger towards siblings. And I'm not talking about a little bit of anger, I'm talking about rage, yeah. um, desires to you know, kill your parents off, which is actually very common in psychoanalysis, that, that your own discomfort with your own aggression might be what's holding you back. And sometimes people sabotage their own life Um, that they won't find people that are available to them, careers that are available to them. They have inhibitions because they are so uncomfortable with feeling a negative emotion and getting mad at other people because they feel. And I feel like I've seen this more strongly with people who are white, that if you have a negative emotion, it makes you a bad person. And I'm saying that that is absolutely not the case. It's the other way around, that it's actually going to harm you to not feel that negative emotion. So the goal of psychoanalysis is to, is to sort of say, OK, the story that you have about yourself right now is one that has been made defensively and to take out areas of pain and conflict so that you can function and survive. But that narrative of yourself like is no longer useful. It's holding you back. So how can we slowly dismantle this narrative? and get into the areas of pain, conflict, rage, so that you can have a new story about yourself where you have more flexibility, you have more freedom to move, and you can actually move forward in a way in your life where you can sort of take charge of the world and get all the things that you want in your life. I think that's really, to not feel like anything is actually holding you back And so in simple- your personal life. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, so I was going to say, so similarly to you know, obviously you explore. You said the ideation of wanting to kill your parents, which clearly isn't an actual desire to kill your parents, but it's like a. Mm-hmm. a, a I presume because I'm not an expert in the field at all, but it's it's a feeling. Um, yeah. Would there be there and an, an analogy with what you were saying in the speech of like the 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 desire to kill you you know in the, that particular segment that we just spoke on. The desire to kill white people was not an expression of anything other than the similarity we would draw to the ideation you speak about vis-a-vis one's parents.
1: I wouldn't even use the word ideation. I think that I think the only reason that I got stuck, people got so perseverative about it is because it's about race. Uh, the real the real issue is that people talk like this all the time, right? Let me just give you an example. I'm using the word fantasy. And I think people have this idea that means that you're sitting there and plotting and thinking about it, but it's just the loose way that we talk all the time. Let me give you an example. Someone might go to work, um, they're having an interaction with their boss, their boss got them in trouble, um, they had a long day, they were frustrated, they go home um, after a long day of work and they say to their spouse or their wife, Oh God, my boss is so frustrating. I could have, I could have killed him. Right now. This is just a normal way that people talk. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it's part of our everyday, Oh my God, I could have killed that guy or, you know, and that is what a fantasy is. It is a moment of frustration or a moment of impotence. The reason that people are taking it so literally, Is a symptom that it is because it is specifically about race. Mm -hmm. If it was about any other context, no one would take it that literally. Because this is what psychiatrists do, this is what psychoanalysts do. This is part of the the bread and butter of what we get into every day. And this is what forensic psychiatrists. We talk about violence all the time. The fact that everyone is so hung up on it and like into the details and really thinks it's a, a you know they're sort of making it very big and taking it so seriously, I'm saying is a defensive reaction that they need to take it literally. And the reason that they need to take it literally is they don't actually want to look inwards and feel all the negative feelings that they actually feel. They want to feel like I'm the person that's aggressive. So So it's a defensive reaction.
0: So what are the negative feelings that we're
1: avoiding through the defensive reaction? the desire to cause harm and violence.
0: So, that is
1: ultimately, oh, mm-hmm. go ahead.
0: No, so, so sorry, so, so white people's desire to cause violence? Yes, okay. to not be aware of that. To not be aware of their desire to cause violence. So is that I something know. you think is um, an unconscious uh, part of everyone's who's racialized as white psyche? Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's there in many in in many ways, and we've come up with a massive system of lying to not know uh, intentions.
0: Right, and so this is rooted this um, desire to cause harm, presumably to people of color, anyone excluded from whiteness. I would assume mm-hmm. in, in history, in um... in
1: culture, yeah. In culture, in history, in political ideology, how do we tell the story of America? How do we rationalize the level of violence towards Native Americans? They're not even, if you open up an American history book, they're not even there. Now that's not an accident. It's actually that the the non-mention of their existence reflects the blind spot of how people don't actually see them
0: and so that blind spot when internalized f- from a young age then manifests as an unconscious desire to cause harm to that population
1: i would say it it is an a- the action of causing harm it's not it's being not aware of the feeling and and the action i would say that part of whiteness is the passivity like the continual participation in not doing something so by not talking about Native Americans by not talking about their place in history, you're actually still eradicating them at every moment. um, And every day by not acknowledging it. And you can see if you want to see a defensive reaction take place, and people will say no, that's not really true. How can you say that I do think about them. If you want to see a defensive reaction take place, start calling America Turtle Island, and you will see how mad people get about that and you have to ask why
0: Turtle, and the reason- Turtle island
1: yeah so for,
0: for non-americans listening what w- why would that be particularly infuriating
1: because that is the that would be claiming who it actually belongs to it belongs to the indigenous people mm-hmm. And if you claim that something doesn't actually belong to people who are white, it's going to cause a lot of rage because they don't want to think that they want to think that even with, you know, football players taking the that they have given you something. Hmm. We are magnanimously giving you something. We did not take anything. This is ours. But the second you begin to call things what they are, you will see a lot of rage You will see a lot of reactions. You can't do that. This is ours. Now, why are people getting angry? Mm. And the reason that they're getting angry is because it's what it's reflecting is a level of entitlement. How dare you say that this is Turtle Island? This belongs to us. Mm. Now, you're not aware of that until you actually begin to call it what it really is. And then you'll begin to see that people have very strong emotional reactions to it. But as long as we're complicit in calling it, you know, even the name, the United States of America is kind of funny. A, because we're not united. Mm. And uh, B, I think because it's it's about the the tribes of Native Americans. Right. They're, They're calling it states. But what what got fragmented were all the tribes. So the name itself shows the lie
0: right and and so in your in your work so as a as a psychoanalyst you um take people's um i guess delusions narratives about who they are so we have narratives about who we are as nations um who we are as individuals how Uh how do the two connect um when it comes to whiteness specifically because is the Is the national narrative about white identity replicated in each individual person or how does it manifest?
1: Well, I guess it depends in what context you're talking about. So I'd say at the level of the individual, if someone is coming in for a psychoanalysis, then I will focus on their personal narrative, right? And their personal narrative, imagine that everybody, every single person in the world has an unconscious. They're all blind spots that we're not aware of. Um, And the way you can kind of think about it is that everyone has their own personal delusional system. And then I will focus in on that. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna be different for different people. However, you will see that there are patterns for people who are white that kind of, kind to struggle with a lot of the same things. They struggle struggle much more with shame. Mm -hmm. They struggle much more with guilt. They struggle a lot more with letting themselves feel free. They often feel like they have to have permission. I think a lot of drinking culture is sort of organized around this idea that America is very free. But if you actually think about it, if you are that free, why do you require a drink? You know, what is it that you are reaching for in that drink that you feel needs to give you permission or a lot of times people will talk, you know, there's a lot of substance abuse is very high in this country. I just need to relax. Relax from what? What do you need to relax from? And um, a lot of things, a lot of ideas that I see often are from white feminism, this idea that everybody else around me is repressed and I'm really free. Meanwhile, they like white women, I feel like can't really move that well. They're so incredibly perfect in individually perfectionistic. They don't give themselves enough emotional space. Um, One of the things that I've noticed in people who are white, that is very different. And I think part of what I spoke about in my talk is that they don't feel like they can express anger or rage because they have been conditioned by all of these lies to speak non-truths right to always protect someone else's feelings Mm so I'd say one of the things that I've noticed is this trope around niceness well I have to be nice well why do you have to be nice well the other person might perceive it this way okay, well, why is it your job to take care of like their emotional regulation? It's this constant level of catering. And I think the real sadness of that for people who are white is that they don't feel like they can express anger, frustration, pain directly, because they feel like the relationship will be so fragile, that it's going to dismantle, or fall apart, or someone's going to get mad at them. So and we can see this a lot, I think, in a lot of white feminism as well and in white women is uh, just a lot of difficulty. And it's real. It's really sort of sad in just expressing yourself and seeing what your own needs are. So I do feel like I see that a lot more overlaid along whatever personal story that some might, one might have because of the community they, they keep or the people that they're around or the systems in the communities don't support a more free way of living and being. And they're like almost shackled with guilt, shame, feeling that you're bad because if the thought is that if you have a negative feeling, it means that you are a bad person. And I feel like I see that all the time.
0: And so in your work, do you then um, use, what? how do you confront, make people be confronted with those particular narratives? And I'm asking because uh, obviously, the idea I presume from the talk was to confront people with the um, underlying uh, rage, albeit, you know, one that's uh, completely contextually un- understandable um, of people of colour. Was, was it, it do, is that the same thing that you do at an individual level that, that you think needs to be done at a societal level? Uh,
1: well, in an individual in an individual level, I'm focusing more on the person, right? So I'm meeting them where they are at. Now, my, you know, and what they're struggling with. So I, it begins very slowly, just maybe asking someone to observe, you know, I can give you an example, like you, we not, we may not know what something means, but we can begin to observe something. Mm -hmm. Someone keeps Showing up 15 minutes late to a call. Mm-hmm. Now, they may get defensive about, I had this to do, I had that, you know, this to do, you don't understand this. But you might see over time, I'll say, you know, I, over time, I might say something like, Have you noticed that it's hard? There's always a reason why it's hard for you to get here on time. Mm-hmm. And you might begin to see that there might be some trauma in their history where their parents were unavailable, they needed to protect themselves emotionally. And so it is focused with my work individually is focused with where someone is at and what they can observe. And I'm very closely aligned with where they're at, right? Now, what I did around race um, was I'm not focusing exactly on where someone is at. And the reason that I'm not doing that is that many people don't think that there's an issue, right? <laughs> that there is no problem at all. I don't know why. why you're talking about this, but it was an invitation. Mm -hmm. for a particular subset of people not it's not for everybody Mm -hmm. who are willing to reflect on their own violence that is who the invitation is for so Mm -hmm. if people don't want to reflect on it or don't think it's a problem Mm -hmm. then that's fine you can leave it's sort of like you know i'm only really here for the people who want to go on this journey otherwise it would literally be like me running out into the streets and saying like, well, you need to do psychoanalysis. You need to do psychoanalysis. Someone is not going to come into a psych treatment until they can begin to experience that it is not, the problem is not the world that there is some part of them that is playing a role into it that they need to actually address. Mm. Only those people are going to come into treatment. I'm not trying to run after the people that like, aren't ready and think that the world is the problem or that I'm the problem because those people are not ready yet to begin to acknowledge that there's something that they need to work on. So I'd say sort of similarly, you know, I'm doing sort of a broader hit, but for people around race, I'm not running after people, right? The people that had a defensive response to me and the ones that took things literally are not the population that I'm actually going for. Mm. I, You know, and I think part of the, the difficulty in the narrative is that I think the a lot of the right wing rage machine that kind of came alive towards me is clouding out the fact that there actually are a lot of white people that are interested, like and I've heard from them hmm. and they want to do the work and they are interested and they see that it has actually emotionally harmed them as well. And I think that part of the the issue with the press is that they're it's covering up over a lot of you know, I've gotten a lot of very vulnerable, real questions from people who are right, who are interested in this work and can also see that they have been really emotionally harmed and that there is trauma for white people too, that they have suffered by a lot of these lies because it's made them function in a certain kind of way. So for the, for the I'd say for the, the people that I'm doing talks for, yes. it's an invitation for those who are interested. Okay. For those who are not interested, like you know, it's not for you. It's okay. Yeah. Like I don't, need, I don't need the whole world, you know.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that I often think this when we I see um, some of the controversies that flare up around uh, critical race theory. I often think to myself, um, I'm certain that none of the actual specialists in the room uh, were offended by any of the things that were said, but I know mm-hmm. that taken out of that room um without kind of understanding some of the building blocks of 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 theory that yeah these things can very quickly become um completely decontextualized um Mm -hmm. I i was wondering if you could um explain to us what is the psychopathic white mind we um had uh, uh, Kende Andrews, the uh, professor uh, on and he actually made a film called the white psychosis. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I'm just interested to hear uh, how how similar or, or different your idea of the psychopathic white mind is.
1: Well, I'm saying that basically, at the level of the mind, white people have constructed a false identity. And the way that they've constructed a false identity is that they've actually inverted reality that any time a white person, and this is through history, this has started with colonization, so this is not even something, I'm not saying that an individual has has consciously thought of this, but these lies have started since colonialism and conversion, that any time violence has been done on other countries and other people, it's done under the guise of, well, we're here to protect you, we're here to help you. Now, who said that anyone needed anyone's help? Like. You go and you invade Africa, and you're like, "We're here to help you. you Africa didn't need help. Africa's rich. It's like culturally rich. It had tons of resources. We're coming to help India. We think that you could benefit from a trade. Why the fuck do you think that like we needed to benefit from the trade? We have enough stuff. So this idea that that anytime someone wants something, wants to invade, wants to take something, wants to usurp and get rapacious, This idea of like we're this very paternalistic idea of like we're here to protect you. We're here to help. And then it it functions to justify the violence Mm. and the way that it actually operates is by inverting reality. That every time you use the word protect, it's what you're actually doing is something violent. And because of telling these lies and taking and usurping all the time it's actually it's a psychopathic level of violence but in order to keep justifying violence you need to come up with another identity and that's this identity that i've termed and called white goodness which is actually not that you're a psychopath but you are a hero you are the superheroes of the of the world and you know western civilization talks like this we're amazing we're We come up with super foods, we're super freaks, we're super this, super that. Everything is this like massive, like exalting of identity. That's I mean, that sounds ridiculous. But but I think for for people of color, but it is part of this culture that we live in of like putting people on the level of heroes and not examining the violence that they do. So I would think of it and so every time you do that and if you do it over a period of time or many 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 years it just becomes it's part of the culture it's part of history so you have to actually internalize those lies.
0: Mm. And,
1: and and those lies oh sorry go ahead.
0: No no so, so sorry so so the those you know I'm interested in the end of that sentence so the lies the lies then serve to what buttress Uh, and continue to perpetuate the current system because it makes it harder to see, presumably the inequality within it because the narrative serves to claim that, you know, we're we're the heroes where we are
1: actually the perpetrators. Absolutely. So I would- Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go on. And so that's sort of on a more general level, but on an individual level, I mean, psychopathy is an extension of narcissism, right? So a narcissist is, you know, tells a certain level of lies and has a false identity. Then there's a malignant narcissist. Now, the rage that we saw against me, what is what what is that? That is because a psychopath is being challenged. And when a psychopath is challenged because they don't what's actually happening is that their identity is crumbling because they don't have a real sense of self right so in their minds they think that they have given people all these things we provided with humanity we keep going in and saving everybody now when that starts to get challenged if you don't have a real sense of self because everything's based on lies your sense of who you are is going to feel very fragile and your and it's going to start to crumble now that's very threatening mm. now when that That feels very threatening because I'm I'm challenging their entire sense of self, because you have to remember that white people experience themselves as very good. And you'll notice that the way that white people talk, well, that was not my intention. But what they won't do is think about they don't actually own their intentions. Well, that was not my intention. This was not my intention. That was not my intention because it's a privilege to not actually have to think about negative intentions. But what's actually happening when I challenge this or when you point out a lie is that the mask of the psychopath kind of has to come off a little bit. It got, I unsettled them. Mm -hmm. That's when you have this massive rage reaction and that massive rage reaction is a defensive response of like, oh fuck, my identity is falling apart. I, I'm losing all parts of myself. I need to really mobilize and fight this person. Otherwise, my sense of self is going to completely crumble. Hmm. I'm going to fall apart. I don't exist. And that's how we can understand the attacks on me as part of a symptom to keep up a very fragile sense of self that was never real. Because if it was real, then it, you don't. Then you don't require someone else's validation, perspective. You don't need to fight me. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And and does it? Do you see that as part of the stages of recognition of the problem of whiteness? In that, uh, presumably, I mean, maybe a patient individual level is that like an in an an initial reaction people have, and then as the the anger subsides, then is that like the beginning of a realization? Or or can people just stay in rage? I mean, maybe they do. I don't know.
1: So I think it depends on on their willingness to participate. So um, like I said, the people that come into treatment, they're willing to look at themselves, right? (laughs) They're already in the door. And I think that because they're in the door, they these reactions are going to come up. And for anything, for this is for people of color. This is for people who are white. Anytime you have a defensive reaction and defenses can come up in different ways. They can be avoidance. They can be anger, but there is a system of trust between me and that person that we are here to look at these defenses, and we're not going to judge them. So ultimately, they know that no matter what happens, they're going to get mad at me one day and not show up, that I'm there to look at this thing with them that is very difficult. Mm. And not to judge it, right? I'm not judging it, but to establish a state of like openness and curiosity about how their mind works. Mm. Now, like hey that was really what you know like hey did you notice that you got really mad at me when i said this like what do you what do what do you think is happening between us because just five minutes ago we were feeling really connected and then you brought up my vacation and suddenly you're angry well it's not because you're leaving dr kalanani you know what i mean yeah. so it's not, it has nothing to do with that i had a bad day my stomach hurts my dog with this it is not you you think you know what i mean so you can begin to have a conversation about something that they don't want to acknowledge, that we have a real relationship, yeah. that our relationship is important, that they they maybe feel uncomfortable fe- being angry at me for being away. All these things are really normal. And I think that for for doing work on race where I'm doing talks, it's a little bit different because the people who are defensive – they may not be the same people who walk in the door. Yeah, no, I hear you.
0: It's, it's like, how, how do we as a society get everyone to be willing to be the kind of societal equivalent of wanting to come to the
1: psychoanalyst's chair, right? Right. But I don't think, I think, I think that goal is too big. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I think I would clarify it. I don't think that we can get everyone. Okay. And I think, that I think critical that that's mass. why I sort of, what was that
0: critical mass, maybe?
1: Yeah. And I, I think the critical mass that I'm trying to establish is that, you know, I am, I am expressing frustration, hmm. and I am expressing anger. And, but that doesn't mean that I don't care about the person, right? <laughs> like, I am expressing all these things. But, you know, Like, and I'm trying to elicit some negative feelings, but actually I think the missing piece, I think for people who are maybe not interested in some of these things is that white people have actually been harmed too. Hmm. And I I think it's so not, not, I think that it's just not acknowledged. I think part of this idea around race is like, well, we have to do this for black people. We have to do this for people of color. And, and, and I think if I was white, that would not make that much sense to me. I'd be like, Oh my God, I already feel shame. I already feel guilt. When I see what white people go through the idea that you would have another burden to do something for someone else, I think makes no sense because I can already see how white people by taking on a false identity, like they eradicate their emotional life. So I don't think that we need to, I think the goal is to try to get white people in touch with their emotional life to say that it is important, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think ultimately a system that is inequitous in any form is harmful to all parties, even when they don't realize it. Um, and what Absolutely. I mean by that, yeah, I mean, I mean, even very, very rich people, for example, who might justify huge forms of uh, wealth inequality, um, they don't realize that they're actually indirectly harming, that they, they might not realize the harm that they're causing on others, but the harm of that system also harms them um and, and i see and i see race that way i see misogyny or um mm-hmm. you know any all forms of inequality in that way but I, I wanted to ask you about france fanon because when i first heard about um the the yale talk one of the first people who came to my mind is one of uh my uh personal favorites the uh french west indian psychiatrist and, and philosopher mm-hmm. france fanon um who yeah. who, who himself in his day was um the subject of much controversy uh, for people who aren't familiar um, he among his comments um you know said that at the level of individuals violence is a cleansing force it frees the native from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction it makes him fearless and restores his self-respect and he was you know maligned and, and actually misrepresented on many occasions as as justifying um violence i think anyone who studied him would would, would disagree with that. But I I was wondering to what extent your comments aligned with uh, Fanon's way of thinking about violence. Um,
1: You know, I don't remember, I have read him in in the past. So uh, I was definitely influenced by his thinking earlier and, you know, in reading critical race theory. Um, I think that, you know, I think sometimes we're using the word rage um, interchangeably around people of color versus the defensive rage reaction that I just spoke about when we begin to talk about race, which is the collapse of the narcissist. And I think the two things are different. So I feel like I do agree with him. And I think, you know, the the rage of BIPOCs and people of color and the black community and, and Native Americans is not the same thing. It is a communication about pain. And the reason that it is anger is because we have not actually been able to grieve. Like anger, something becomes rage and anger when you're unheard again and again and again and again. But what you really want is to be heard Mm. and for people to hear you. So I think the only reason that it's Anger is because you know it it has been unable to be sort of received yet. That and, and because it it's been unable to be received, you either have to cut yourself off from a community and to protect yourself, or you have to find other ways of processing. But yeah, I do think that you know you have to be, um, I would say probably especially for Black America, you, you probably should be angry. There are many things that are harmful and really painful and destructive to your daily living that it, it is a, a sign of psychological health if you're angry because of the level of pain and sadness yeah. of what's actually it's it's pain and I think that is sometimes I think what people are not seeing clearly because I think people talk about anger like it's interchangeable and one is a defensive reaction of a narcissist falling apart And the other is like a real sadness for something that hasn't been able to be mourned or grieved collectively in our country. And I think that's actually the work that I'm trying to do is to sort of set that stage for the real sadness that we actually all have gone through together, you know?
0: Mm. Now that's that's such an interesting concept because even in things like restorative justice, like you can't move forward with a perpetrator of harm unless there's been a recognition of the harms done, right? You can't grieve just um, one-sidedly. For something that's happened, and I think about that a lot when it comes to, to to racism. That the idea that we don't even have a common narrative, we don't speak from uh, often like shared hymn sheets when it comes to history, when it comes to the harm that's been uh, done. Um, I was wondering before we we move to the quick fire session, how, how if you wanted to share a few words about how you feel that whiteness has harmed the people of color who you. You know, obviously, I know you can't refer to individual cases, but can you talk about the harm that whiteness causes to the, the psyche of individual people of color?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's just sort of a level of trauma of always being seen as, uh, um, like, I would say, some of my Black male patients, just even small things, they, the way they get treated in the rating, in the waiting room, Mm -hmm. the way that someone responds to them, Mm -hmm. I have had um, situations where, and thankfully, I no longer share an office space with this particular psychologist, where, you know, the way that they have, and this is not in words, this is in body language, Mm -hmm. the way that they have, and they will always discount it, the way that they have opened the door, You know, I happen to be late one day, but the the way that they happen to open the door to a black man, the you know, who are it's this tone? Who are you? We're kind of like they don't have a right to be there. Mm. And another patient might say, no, I've seen this person and they will still block. They'll still block entry to the door, even though they've seen them. Mm. They know that they're there and, you know. So a lot of times I've seen some patients and they're, they're fuming and I understand why, and it's not the words because the words will say, well, this is the policy, but it's how that they, how they did it. Right. So they physically, the other person physically blocked off the office space,
0: Hmm.
1: right? Physically like took their body and physically blocked off the office. They did not make eye contact. They didn't, you know, the other person is smiling. They're saying, they're, they're acting like, like, they're acting like they are being threatened when in fact, this person (laughs) is a patient and has the right to be there.
0: Mm.
1: And, And even, even to the point where other patients are like saying like, no, like this person, like I, we've, you know what I mean? They, and they know they're lying now then, then how this gets followed up with me later is you know, um, this same psychologist sent me a text um, oh, by the way, this is the policy. They'll start referring to policies and I already know that there was a problem. And then they will say, uh, and this is the same narrative, it happens again and again with people who are white. I think they, um, they had a feeling, it's always put on their feelings. They had a feeling that I was profiling them. Right. So why did you have the, like they, what, what they start doing is, and that's a rationalization. They had a feeling that I was profiling them. It's, but what they won't do is look at what they actually did. Mm. The, the marker of a racist for me is, is focusing on someone else's. Like, oh, maybe you should, ex-, like, as if the expectation is like, oh, maybe Dr. Kiloni. what you need to do is just focus with them on their, their feelings that they're being profiled. And I was like, no, you, you, you did act in a way where you treated, you know, this sense of like, well, where did, the, where did this person come from? Hmm. And a lot of that that you know, I think is on how someone dresses, if they dress in a particular way, if they dress particularly black, you know, I think that and and they're they're well dressed, but it is but it is black, I think will always be a marker of how well this person was feeling that I was doing something. And I think this it's very infantilizing and paternalistic to to have the idea that they can then intercede as a Psychoanalyst and be like, well, you should focus on their irrational feelings. Mm. I'm like the feelings are not irrational, but it's but it's it's like the utilization of the role for something that they actually don't have the role for. When in fact they're the ones that cause the harm, and then they flip the narrative to be like, well, this person, you you should focus on their feelings. They had a feeling that that I was profiling them, and I was like, no, mm. you blocked them off. You so, acted in a certain way, you know.
0: Is, is this a, is, so? It sounds like the field itself has a a major blind spot, which could actually really be having a detrimental impact on people of color who are seeking out help from psychoanalysts, psychologists who haven't assessed these things, because...
1: Oh, I I actually think that that psychoanalysts have the largest problems. I'm glad that you brought that up. But some of the most racist people I feel like that I have met have actually been psychoanalysts. Mm. And I think part of that is the narcissism of the field, that since we know about the unconscious, there's no way we can have blind spots, right? OK. <laughs> that, right. They, but that they are actually part of the collective psychology. You, like, like if you think about a sort of a cultural unconscious, it's already white, but they can't observe that right. because they think yes. they're either a psychiatrist or they're a psychoanalyst they don't see themselves as already having a white mind. They see themselves as outside of that. And I think because of that, it perpetuates like a higher level of narcissism.
0: Right. And then presumably minimizes the harm that's being done by placing the blame on individual people of color's experience of a situation rather than recognizing the structure behind
1: the situation itself. Well, I would take it a step even further. I would say it is it is it is always putting bipox and people of color in the position where their perceptions mm. will be were, are going to be attacked continuously mm. to hold up the structure of the psychiatrist or psychoanalyst's idea that they are good and not that they are violent. Okay. Why do you think that kept, why do you think that kept happening to you? Like, it's happened to me. It's happened to many people of color I know. Why do you think this keeps happening to you? Mm. Well, what do you think you're doing to elicit this attack? This happens to black men all the time. Do you think that you're paranoid? I mean, it's so condescending. Yeah. It's, it's so condescending. Or another thing that happens a lot with people of color is like you will tell them about a shared experience, and this happens quite a bit in training, with someone else that they know. And what they will say is, well, I know them, and they're good. So, and white people do this all the time, but especially psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, they will rely on their own relationship with a person who's also going to be white. And they will utilize that as an outside body of knowledge to tell someone else why their perception is incorrect. Not that they have sort of a shared collusion that they're both racist and they don't want to think of themselves as racist or the other person as racist. Mm. So it's sort of a defensive response of like me and my friends are not racist. So you, like I know them. Okay, yeah. So, so, the fuck, so the fuck what? <laughs> so what the fuck does that mean? Like, it means that you are using your subjective experience of a person and elevating that as an objective body of knowledge. And only white people do that.
0: Yeah, I, it's so interesting because it's so similar to what a uh, conversation that I had uh, recently around um, uh men and when you raise issues with men about misogyny and and you mm-hmm. know one of their guy friends will say no no i know him he's he's a really good guy and my response <laughs> was you you know him in relation to you you don't know right. him in relation to me i was like i know we women we know men when you're not around and Absolutely. you'll never know what men are like when you're not around And I guess it's a similar, it's a similar thing, right? Where it's like, it's also like a not believing thing, which is the, the, another, I guess, continuous facet in these conversations of people of color just raising issues and and white people dismissing them because it's um, an uncomfortable thing to hear. Um,
1: So- And it's giving the conversation away, right? Someone else has an experience, sort of what you just described and you, are not aware that you're having a defensive reaction Mm. it's completely out of mind to move away from that person's experience and reestablish your own Mm -hmm. i know them yeah like like as you said you don't you don't know them with women but but it's but the idea that they should tell you what it is that you should be thinking and feeling is a relationship of control right
0: premises move immediately isn't it
1: yeah yeah
0: um, and so what, what pitfalls, sorry, no, we're, gonna, we, we're overdue the quickfire round. Last one, what pitfalls sure. um, could you advise individual white people in the anti-racism field against when it comes to their own individual psychology? Are there any things that you sort of think, God, I wish all white people would just know these basic things or like learn to recognize these basic
1: things? I wish I could say, I think everybody wants a list, but I think part of this desire that everybody wants this list is that I think on some level people don't wanna put in the work, right? And the work is actually very slow. It's very gradual and it happens every day. There's no like cheat sheet, there's no magic. I don't like can't offer anything that is that is magical. I think what I would start, the only thing I would start to say is just to start, observe your own reactions when you're starting to feel frustrated, when you're starting to feel impotent. And I think the most scary is when you're starting to notice a moral reaction because that is usually the marker of a racist. The marker of a racist is that they're gonna tell somebody, they're gonna focus on another person's feelings and discount their own intentions. So I would say those, those are the main things is to start a practice of observation. Okay, thank
0: you. So let's head now to the quick fire round. What is your definition of whiteness?
1: I would say at the, I think of it as the level of, of the mind, but it is the not knowing your own real intentions to cause harm because it's, they're not owned and made unconscious and then put on other people and then internalizing a system of lies to hold up your sense of self. What is the root of racism? I would say racism is a remnant of earlier violence. Racism is sort of like a historical legacy, I would say, of two things, colonialism and and conversion.
0: Is whiteness a psychological state of mind?
1: I think it's having a certain kind of mind. I don't think it's a state of mind, because state means that it can change. It, It fluctuates from moment to moment. And I'm saying that it is an internalization of not owning violence that causes blind spots that needs to be slowly worked on. But in, it doesn't it doesn't shift from day to day, you know?
0: Sorry. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? A post,
1: what do you mean when you say racial, I guess?
0: so post-racial in this in this country has been discussed a lot at one point we had senior government ministers announcing that britain had become a post-racial society meaning one in which race no longer mattered was no longer an issue so there was a big debate that ensued from that obviously many Mm -hmm. people disagreed um so that's the context of the question i guess the idea of a post-racial world would be a world in which um of course you know we all look different size you know amount of melanin hair color whatever mm-hmm. it may be but the, the the meaning that we ascribe to those rooted in some kind of racial hierarchy would no longer be relevant
1: um that would be i mean i i think it's it's funny that they said that now because that, that that sort of seems like it's an enormous lie yeah. but i think the the goal is to get to a place where you know colorism and these hierarchies don't exist. Can it happen? I hope so. <laughs> um,
0: is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism?
1: I think um, I feel the same way about the words whiteness that I feel about racism. Is whether they're 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 a little bit too abstract? I think that. In order for us to actually change individually, we should start stop using words like systemic racism and whiteness. I think we just start needing to own own things individually and say i uh, I am I have like um, white supremacy. I am racist but but that talking about it in abstraction isn't helpful because then no one actually wants to own it individually or do the work.
0: Racism without racists that that one. Yes um. right. Thank you so much, Dr. Aruna Kilanani. Really appreciate your time. If people would like to connect with your work, with your ideas, is there somewhere you would like to refer them to?
1: Sure, you can um, follow me on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I think TikTok is probably my favorite medium. And I also have a website that you can shoot me um, emails. Um, I do talks. So you can definitely hit me up there. And I'm putting out my series slowly about White goodness, the unconscious ways in which white people have been harmed, um, and then all aspects of uh, all aspects of culture that have contributed to it. So that's to kind of go on this slow emotional journey with me is kind of what I'm recommending.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, Dr. Kilinani, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.